Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator, and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions, like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each of us has just one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes. That's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. Welcome to Series 4. We're so excited to continue cooking along with our new ingredients by shaking, stirring, and folding in a slightly new format and some special guests. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the historical kitchen with us so far. Just like a good roast in the slow cooker, the topics we research usually need much more than just one hour to research. So this year we're following a different recipe and focusing the entire series on one topic. Food. Spices, mealtime, cookbooks, military rations, preserving food, and restaurants. We're also excited to welcome some special guest museum professionals from our neighbor museums here in Niagara to help us carry the ounces, teaspoons, and tablespoons, cups, pounds, and even bushels of research we'll be cooking with on the podcast this year. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, prime ministers, soda water, maps, Thanksgiving, daylight savings time, telephones, stuffed animals, printing, and even the FLQ October crisis. On today's episode of One Hour in the Past, we're excited to welcome Michael Ashford from the Niagara Military Museum in Niagara Falls, Canada, who will be joining us today to talk about military rations. Good morning, Kathleen and Adrian. Nice to be with you as well. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. So, Mike, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a bit about the Niagara Military Museum? Sure, that's that's great. Uh, my name is Michael Ashford. I served 15 years total in the Canadian Army in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War period, mostly. Uh, 12 years reserves, three years regular Army. Uh, served in uh, the Royal Canadian Regiment, the Canadian Airborne Regiment, and the Lincoln and Welland Regiment in Niagara. I retired from the military in 1992 as a master warrant officer. And uh, pretty much all my life, since I was a little wee lad, I've been interested in military history and Canadian history particularly. So that's that's where I come from. Uh, I do reenacting. I do impressions, they're called, of the Canadian soldier in World War I and the Canadian paratrooper in World War II. So I, I do that as a, as a living history thing. 
I'm a volunteer with the Niagara Military Museum. It's a volunteer-run uh, military museum in Niagara Falls, Ontario, uh, honoring the tri-service uh, service of Canadians from the Niagara region in the Army, Navy, and Air Force in the 20th century. And uh, it's located in the historic Niagara Falls Armory, which I know uh, many of you know. It's on Victoria Street. And up until 1999, it was still an active DND uh, reserve uh, uh, facility for the Lincoln and Welland Regiment and the 10th Battery of Artillery. So stop by someday when COVID's over and visit the museum. Thank you. Yes, for our uh, listeners who can't see what's going on, Mike is decked out in, uh, I don't even know what uniform you're wearing. You may have mentioned it to Adrian when we first came on, but uh, <laughs> decked out in a uniform with a helmet and everything. <laughs> it's a World War II Canadian helmet and a World War II Canadian battle dress blouse. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. I'm just going to uh, print our screen here so that everyone can see. Uh, and I'll post a, a photo of our Zoom call in the. Oh, I'll do it again. He's saluting <laughs> me. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, I'll post that photo in our in the footnotes to this episode. That's awesome. Thanks so much for coming. You're the first person to come on a podcast in uniform. That's amazing. Oh, why not? <laughs> yeah, it's a great topic for it. Thanks so much. Mike, for joining us. Uh, we start off every podcast with a definition of what we're talking about. So I looked up what a ration is, a military ration, and the definition came back as a ration is a fixed amount of commodity officially allowed to each person during a time of shortage as in wartime. Specifically for our topic, military rations are those fixed amounts distributed to military personnel. Ration is an 18th century French word derived from the Latin ratio. Google has charted its usage and unsurprisingly, the use of the word ration peaked in 1941 to 1947. So what we usually do is we start off with a research summary and we say where we started and where we ended up and leave all, all the stuff in the middle. And then we go back and each of us goes through uh, where our research took us. So I'm gonna start. I started my research with that peak usage in 1941. I, my definition doesn't always, uh, isn't always my starting place, but this time the Ngram chart on Google was really, really interesting. So uh, that's where I started and I ended up with something called <laughs> fish and brewis. So <laughs> it's going to be a very interesting uh, research from me. <laughs> and next, uh, we're going to hear the research summary from Kathleen. Yeah, so uh, I do have a little bit of background uh, related to uh, rations, uh, military rations I've eaten many military rations over the years uh, as a cadet and then as a now a cadet officer. So I have some background there. So that uh, was kind of in my head. So I actually started with a, a research on IMPs, which are individual meal packs, and did a little bit of uh, research on that. But eventually, I ended up on this tangent about World War One. I. I was specifically really interested in World War One rations. And that pretty much took me to the end of the hour. Honestly, an hour was not long enough uh, to uh, um, to do this research, in my opinion, it never really is. But uh, the last thing I have here was uh, regulations related to the rum ration. So we'll get to that. 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, how big that run rum ration was, I guess, depended on or led to the success or maybe the failure of any military action. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Mike, let's hear where you started and where you ended up. Okay, well, my research actually was more like three hours because I, I went between the internet and uh, some of the many hundreds of books on military history I have stashed in the basement, which my wife tells me to get rid of, but I never will. Uh, <laughs> Good thing you didn't. Because <laughs> I accessed about a half a dozen books that had information on uh, military rations. Uh, and I, I, I sort of worked backwards. I, I went from my own experience in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s and uh, did some research on IMPs and MREs, the American version. And then I, um, I went into World War I in a lot of detail. As uh, Kathleen says, it's a very interesting period uh, in military history. And then I ended up in World War II. So my, my areas mostly cover World War I, World War II, and, uh, and modern day, more or less. And like Kathleen, I, I served in the modern day Canadian military, and that's where the IMPs come in. And uh, that, that's, where, that's where it took me. And uh, it was very interesting. The Rome Russian US was in there in World War I. And I remember getting it still in the early <laughs> 80s during winter warfare, still getting an ounce of Rome to help you sleep at night in your tent. Nice. Interesting fact. That is really, really cool. All right, we're gonna start off with me. I get to go first. My research is probably the shortest and the least interesting. So uh, <laughs> because of all three of us, I'm, I th I'm the only one without any military experience or background whatsoever. So going from my, my n-gram chart on how many times rations has been used uh, throughout literature, uh, and again, peaked in 1941 to 1947 for obvious reasons, I clicked through and found an article from the United States uh, Supreme Court about a lawsuit over rations. And I just found the language to in the orders about rations from two different acts of, around the army uh, from March 16th, 1802 and April 12th, 1808 to be just the most mundane language. And I was very interested by how, um, how difficult it is to understand. And maybe for the for that reason, there was a, a seems to be that some, some corruption had happened in the army in the early 1800s, and the court and uh, the, this case ended up before the Supreme Court. Anyway, I just thought the language was uh, so interesting. So I wanted to read a little bit about some of the regulations around rations at this time in the U.S. Army in 1802 and 1808. So by the fourth section of the first mentioned act, it is pr provided that the monthly pay of a brigadier general should be $225, which shall be his full and entire compensation without a right to demand or receive any rations, forage, traveling expenses, or other prerequisite or enrollment whatsoever, except such stationary as may be requisite for the use of his department. That's just like, <laughs> okay, it's very specific. <laughs> uh, by this act, and it probably sounds familiar to you two, uh, knowing you know the language of orders, but I, the, again, the language of orders is so so strange to me. 
By this act, it is provided that each brigadier general shall receive $104 per month, 12 rations per day, and or an equivalent in money, $16 per month for forage when not furnished by the public, and the rations to be 20 cents each. On, what year was this? This is 1802 uh, and 1808. Oh, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I was thinking we were in the 20th century, and I'm like, no, why no. are they talking about forage here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like, or whatever... Um, whatever supplies you can get from the public. That's also like the public is supposed to, in this particular order, the public's supposed to supplement your, or you're supposed to supplement your rations or, or supplies from whatever the public can, you can get from the public, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I just like, it's like, this is the most mundane thing. Now it was a Supreme Court document. So that might be part of it. Anyway, so I got really, really bored really quickly and I decided to move on and I have come up with a game. Everyone knows I love a good matching game. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the common or popular name, the ration, like what each country calls it. But I'm going to start with a really easy one that you've already mentioned. So individual meal pack. What country is that? Canada. Canada. Yay. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, this next one is CR1M or Combat Ration One Man. Does anybody know what country that's from? Great Britain, maybe? That's what I would have said. It is a Commonwealth country, but it's not Great Britain. Australia? Australia, Australia. yes. Very good. Okay. And then I, that's it. That's all I ran that's out. All you but <laughs> the US Army has a bunch of ration names. And so what I did is I picked all the letter rations. And um, I'm going to, uh, so the rations go A, B, C, D, and K. Some are still in existence and some are historical. I'm going to tell you what's in the ration, uh, what's in the ration pack or the description of the ration pack. And you have to tell me which ration it is, A, B, C, D, or K. So this might be a little trickier. We'll see how you do. Mm. Well, maybe we'll start easy because this one's extinct. Uh, or they don't use it anymore, or they don't call it this anymore anyway. The World War II three-meal ration kit, A, B, C, D, or K? K. K is correct. One point to Mike. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The K ration had three meals in in, organized in the kit, supposed to be what you need for the day, essentially. I've heard they were terrible. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. The pictures are very like 1950s photographs of 1950s looking food even though it's the 1940s but it looks like something you could get you know at the army grocery store I guess uh in the 1950s okay canned or preserved foods canned or preserved foods a b c or d c yeah that's what I would say too c is sort of correct (laughs) because they no longer use c rations C rations were replaced. So C rations were specifically canned wet ration. Right. And it was replaced by another letter ration in 1958. Does anybody know what ration they use now for canned and preserved? B. B ration. Very good. Well done. Excellent. (laughs) So B ration and C ration are similar, but I don't, I don't know why they, they did that. Anyway, fresh refrigerated or frozen ration, A or D? I think uh, A. I think A. 
A is correct. <laughs> well done, Michael. Excellent. Okay. And probably the most famous one, I think I had heard about this, and you probably heard about it in the movies, is military chocolate is oh, obviously yes. the last uh, the last answer, which is D ration. Uh, and I would just probably, I don't know how it works, but if I was just, you know, do you just go and pick it up? But I would stuff my pockets with D ration. That's, that's totally <laughs> me. I'm a chocolate person. I know where, yeah, Canadian military rations right now, the, uh, the IMPs that are current right now don't come with chocolate anymore. What? But they yeah. used to. Oh, they used to. Chocolate in bars. The, uh, in the 80s and 90s, for sure. Yes. And you yes. used to like fight it out for the best yeah. chocolate bars. <laughs> actual chocolate bars that you'd buy in a regular store. Oh, yeah. Like a Mars bar or a Kit oh, Kat. And they were awesome. in the ration pack. Wow. That sounds mm -hmm. great. That, that's awesome. Um, cool. So then from there, I moved on to um, food in the Civil War. And there's a couple of neat descriptions of the types of food that was available to them. And from my, you know, research and, and looking into and just what I know about the War of 1812 um, food, it, there's, there, you know, not a huge uh, change in the types of food that were available at the time. But this is the uh, revised United States Army regulations of 1861 for the daily rations of a Union soldier, so the, the soldiers of the North, uh, 12 ounces of pork or bacon, one pound, four ounces of fresh or salt beef, one pound, six ounces of uh, soft bread or flour, one pound, four ounces of cornmeal, one pound of hard bread or hard tack. These were supplemented with a uh, hundred rations, or sorry, per a hundred rations with 15 pounds of beans or peas, 10 pounds of rice or hominy, 10 pounds of green coffee or eight pounds of roasted uh, coffee beans, one pound, eight ounces of tea, 15 pounds of sugar, four quarts of vinegar. Obviously this isn't every day. This is what you get for a per hundred rations. One pound of star candles, which is kind of cool. Four pounds of soap, three pounds uh, 12 ounces of salt, four ounces of pepper, 30 pounds of potatoes, one quart of molasses. What I found really interesting is comparing that to the rations for the Confederate Army. They were apparently they're supposed to be the same as the Union Army or similar to the Union Army, but a lot of they had a lot more supply issues in the South during the Civil War because of the Northern blockades. And so they relied a lot more on uh, foraging and what they could get from, from civilians. Cornbread, uh, apples, um, that kind of thing uh, were uh, pretty common, as well as chicory root, which is good for making tea and in I guess just eating if you need to survive. So, but scurvy was a big, a big problem. So the, the, um, the army tried to supplement in as many onions, apples, peaches, um, pickles, that type of stuff that, that goes really well with moving around. Assumedly, this is the perfect world on paper regulations of how much food people get, but in 100%. reality. A hundred percent. This is happened. Yeah, yeah. This is the the definitely the the perfect world, and apparently the commissary was in the Civil War reported directly to directly to the um, Secretary of War uh, in the Union Army. So I think they were taking food uh, pretty seriously, but yeah, definitely not uh, the reality. Well, the old but, phrase the old phrase "Army marches on its stomach" is very true. 
Yeah. I couldn't imagine, especially a, such a terrible war like this. Not not that all wars aren't terrible, but a ter- famously terrible war like the Civil War would be extra awful if you don't have food or if you're, you know, dying of scurvy and that kind of thing. Um, but their their diets and lives and entertainment and supplies and that kind of thing were supplemented by settlers or vittlers, which were uh, super cool. I knew nothing about. And in fact, this has changed my entire perspective of historic battlefields uh, because I wouldn't have expected civilians to be that involved in supplementing um food and supplies for soldiers but uh, vittlers or settlers were civilians who sold stuff basically to uh and operated near the military posts and front lines settlers were present at the french and indian war or the the seven years war as we call it the american revolution and the american civil war i'm sure they're present in other unfortunately it sounds like at least one settler was actually killed in the civil war because he was so close to the front line so that completely changes my perspective. I mean, my perspective and my image or the, the vision of a historic battlefield that I have in my head is either reenactors, which now I kind of more understand the encampments <laughs> and, and why, <clears throat> why pickle on a stick at a reenactment is like actually pretty accurate. Um, but also like in the movies, you don't really see any of that. You only see the action and then like what's what's seemingly in the movies anyway, seemingly far away from the front line. But these people are much closer than uh, than are usually depicted. So interestingly, um, during the Civil War anyway, they used uh, settler tokens for transactions during the Civil War. And a lot of settlers could establish monopolies uh, on commodities like alcohol, tobacco, coffee and sugar. They also uh, may have and likely had offered gambling, drinking, and prostitution as a part of their services. Uh, all the good stuff. <laughs> organizing all that uh, stuff. stuff. <laughs> there uh, was a there was um, the possibility of going into the direction of researching camp followers, but I decided not to do that. Maybe that, that's probably a different podcast. Um, so, but I wanted to go back and look at hard tack because I can't think of, and maybe, maybe you guys have some better names, but I can't think of a worse or worse appetizing sounding name, like a not appetizing sounding name for a cracker why where hardtack came from i didn't have time to look into but hardtack is that's like the worst name you could give something as simple as water and flour baked as a cracker hardtack in my head would it when i first read it was is that something that you give horses like is it some sort of like you know salt lick <laughs> type thing but anyway so i looked into hardtack hardtack and salt pork essentially were the standard ration for most militaries and navies throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, probably the 19th century as well. And then I had the thought, are opposing armies essentially eating the same thing? And we talked a little bit about the civil, (laughs) (laughs) talked about about the civil war and how there may, may have been some similarities, but also some differences based on supply chains and that kind of thing. But then, you know, I'm thinking about maybe uh, World War One and Two what are the similarities and the differences between the rations that that the 
that the allies and the Axis powers or, or whoever are eating. Obviously, maybe the, the Russians have a much different diet preference than the, the British, for example. And so maybe there's similarities in the types of food, but definitely differences in how it's packaged and brand names and that kind of thing. Anyways, the French, the French would probably have more wine and cheese and bread. Ooh, yeah. I kind of want to be in the French army. <laughs> I would do well in the French army. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> Based on that ration kit. So anyway, it's a horrible name. Hardtack. What the heck? That is, <laughs> can't you come up with a better name? But anyway, it's super popular in Newfoundland, believe it or not. And it's popular in this traditional dish in Newfoundland called fish and brewis. And this is where I ended up, fish and brewis, <laughs> which is essentially cod, salted cod, or salt cod, obviously, and hard tack. So here's the recipe. You soak your salt fish in a water overnight to reduce some of the salt. Uh, the hard tack is also soaked in water overnight. And then you boil them separately until they're both tender, and then you serve them uh, together, essentially. Yeah, that's, um, that's awful. <laughs> apparently, it's a very popular dish in Newfoundland. Only uh, why they so drink that's... a lot out there. <laughs> Those with screech. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's traditional to add uh, scrunchions, which I think are fried salted pork fat. Uh, and then there's a variation called Fisherman's Brewis, which is basically everything I just described, but put into one bowl, essentially. And that's where the tradition comes from. Essentially, fishermen developed fish and brewis uh, at sea. So you would bring hardtack with you or bring flour and water with you to make your hardtack, catch your cod, and then do all the prep as you go through the weeks and weeks that you're at sea. So technically, fish and brewis is a ration, which is super cool. There are some other variations out east. Uh, Drawn butter is sometimes used instead of scrunchions, which is essentially melted butter, onions that's uh, thickened with flour to make some sort of some sort of white sauce of some kind. Uh, I wouldn't know. I've never had it. Probably wouldn't <laughs> order it off a menu either. Uh, Nova Scotia, there's a variation of fish and brewis in Nova Scotia. Uh, that's called uh, salt cod, essentially uh, salt cod. Yeah. Hard tack and, sorry, hard tack and salt cod is what they call it, which is basically <laughs> what it is. So that's good. But they sub potatoes for hard tack in some, some cases. That sounds better. Um, and the, the recipe is a more of a mixture of it all. So they put it all together, kind of like the fisherman's brewis with the pork scraps. And they serve fresh onion in vinegar on the side. Hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah that's right so um nice. that's where i ended up fish and brewis technically a ration not a military ration well maybe could have been a uh, a naval ration maybe in the early um exploration days in you know sort of i'm thinking yeah. like franklin's expedition they, they they nobody nobody calls it um fish and brewis but i'm sure they were doing something similar with some of their rations on those so it evolved into a cultural dish in certain yeah. parts of the country yeah absolutely why i why the evolution into a cultural dish i do not know especially <laughs> in nova scotia this fresh onion in vinegar sounds 
just not, those are two of my least favorite things onions and vinegar so yeah i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna stick with the french army and wine and cheese for my for my ration that sounds good so uh, next up of- is uh is kathy oh sorry did you have a question I was going to say the funny thing about hardtack, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the movie Master and Commander relates to hardtack. So they're sitting at, you know, all the officers are sitting in the officer's mess with this beautiful meal that includes like, you know, roasted meats and all this lovely things. And then there's like a plate with two ginormous uh, wheels, essentially like a round of hardtack and they're kind of stacked on top of each other and they show the the picture in the movie they kind of pan the camera to the hardtack plate with two little weevils uh, kind of um, slithering around on the plate and then there's this crazy uh, scene about the lesser of two weevils which I thought was is kind of funny on its own as a punny kind of thing but uh, uh, but the picture of the hardtack is exactly what you imagine it to be it's like it, one of the articles I read uh, related to World War One, it was uh, like dog biscuit like. Yeah. So it was thick and hard and you couldn't even bite through it. You had to soak it in something to be able to eat. It. That's right. They talked about when I was reading about the Civil War, they talked about insects being a, a huge problem. Yeah. And that one way to solve the weevil issue was to soak your hard tack in coffee and then strain off the weevils out of your coffee so like that way you're definitely not going to eat insects so that's just great that's uh, again i'm going to go back to wine and cheese although (laughs) i guess cheese would attract mice and rats and stuff like that but yeah and if you're at sea for a long period of time you want something that isn't going to go moldy because it's going to be damp so yeah yeah. it's true i guess hard tech it is All right, Kathy, you're up next. Okay, so like I mentioned, I started with the IMP, the individual meal pack. And I really started there because I recall uh, eating IMPs, well, I've eat, I, even more recently, but when I was a teenager in cadets eating IMPs when we were out in the field, it was such a, a novelty at the time for us because you know you're you're 14 years old and you're out camping uh and they feed you these imps they come in this strange looking box with everything packaged separately with like silica gel in a little packet saying please do not eat you know all of that kind of thing it came with coffee which you know you're 14 and someone's giving you instant coffee to drink and all this crazy stuff so uh i wanted to start with imps so uh, which, question there's no difference yes. between what a cadet would eat and what someone like an adult in the military would eat essentially uh, at the time i think we were getting the um the, the kind of not as recent IMPs, but I could be wrong. It might be uh, that we were getting the same thing. But nowadays, if if the cadet program is using IMPs, we get the same rations that the military has. Um, they're different now than they were back in the 80s when I was a teenager, um, but not different, but not different. You know, it was still all prepackaged things. And so I was interested in that. And uh, it, like I said, it was it's individual meal pack is what IMPs are. Uh, sometimes people call them MREs here in Canada. Uh, but in actual fact, that's not accurate. That's the American version. Um, and uh, it's one type of meal that's used by the Canadian forces. 
And uh, the idea is that each meal has enough calories to keep a soldier going who's doing lots of physical, physical activity. Uh, so 1,200 to 14 calories per meal. And they're also incredibly per salty. Meal. Yes, per meal, they have a lot of salt in them and a lot of sugar content in them because you have to imagine that a soldier is doing real physical activity. Uh, and so this meal has to feed them for that amount of time, like for that uh, work that they're doing and they're gonna burn that off. So uh, so that's that. And then it, there are actual IMPs that are for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Although in actual fact, there's breakfast and then there's lunch and dinner that are the same. You could eat either one. There's, there's 21 available options of uh, individual meal packs, according to this article, which was seven different types of breakfast and 14 different types of meals for lunch and dinner. Um, and then I said that there was all kinds of other things inside the, the container when you opened the, the um, IMP. I'm sure Mike will, will get this. So it included powdered coffee, protein and sports drinks, energy bars, trail mix, peanut butter, cereal, condiments, candy or chocolate, gum, a plastic spoon, a towelette and matches. So personally, I actually don't ever remember getting matches in an IMP in any time I've ever had them. Uh, so I don't know when they when they stopped putting matches actually in the IMP, but uh, it did originally include that. But it does include like your, your eating utensils in there. It includes all of those things like energy drinks and coffee and uh, um, tea and these really gummy energy bars come in IMPs now uh, and you could choose between peanut butter flavored and chocolate flavored I think they come in now they usually come with a little packet of cookies nowadays uh, and uh, many different types of meals my interest Personally, is at cookies <laughs> the IMPs from the 90s 80s and 90s uh, I personally didn't really like very much. There were a lot of really awful mm. meal choices. Um, I liked things like Swiss steak or beef bourguignon or something like some sort of a stew thing because it usually came with a packet of potato, mashed potato powder, mm -hmm. which you could make. So, add water, add water, yeah. Yes, and so we figured out that if you cooked the meal and then poured the mashed potato powder into that, meal with its sauce it was actually not bad <laughs> improvised improvised yes, and yes. overcome improvise adapt and overcome my least favorite in those was the ham and egg omelet i hated oh, it everybody it. said that i can imagine eggs oh, that are oh. lasting that long like seriously it chunks of ham and I, I would trade that for something else for somebody that might like it no and i also those people who are listening and who have never had these before will not understand the visual either. Oh, so I can only imagine the, the packets came in like a tinfoil like packet, like a long and skinny packet, like a flat pack almost. And you boiled those. And when you opened it, whatever was, especially the ham and eggs, whatever mm. was in it kept that shape. Yeah. <laughs> so you were essentially like a slab, a, a bar of eggs and yeah. like a slab of food. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, if you didn't have the ability to boil water, which sometimes happens, you could eat all of these things cold, which yes. was not as tasty at all. But the boiling in a pot for five minutes uh, over a small stove, mountain stove or a small fire was the way to go. 
Yes, for sure. And then, uh, um, but the newer um, IMPs that the Canadian military has, I've had some as recently as about a year or so ago, um, are actually not bad. There are some quite good uh, flavors. They have tacos now and um, uh, ravioli, which is my favorite one, spaghetti, uh, chili, all kinds of different uh, different meals now. Um, sadly, there's no more chocolate bars in them, but uh, but the uh, the meals themselves are, in my opinion, much better. I wonder um, if that's a change too in how chocolate bars are made now, which are a lot less real chocolate and more fructose. Mm. product like corn syrup product and I wonder if it's like chocolate isn't as like milk chocolate in particular brand name milk chocolate in particular isn't as healthy as it (laughs) used to be (laughs) well they might not last long enough either so they have to be able to last for a length of time in storage before you use them Uh, so there's always that and there's also one thing I did want to mention about IMPs is the crackers so we were talking about hardtack, and I know back in the 80s and early 90s, the crackers in the IMPs actually were quite good. They, in my opinion, they were one of the best parts of the IMPs, and they were quite nice. Along, you could get the plain cracker or the cracker that had like cracked wheat or something in it, uh, and they weren't too bad. You opened it up, and it was a fairly long cracker. You could put the peanut butter on it, and mm-hmm. sometimes it came with jam, and you could put jam on it. So those were good. But now the crackers come in this like vacuum sealed package. And it's impossible to open the package and not break the crackers up to, into just like powder. Like you can't really eat them that way. So it's, uh, <laughs> but they do come with crackers. So this kind of hearkening back to this idea of hardtack is almost still there. So you still get a cracker in your IMPs, but now there's also bread in a packet that you're supposed to heat it up and it's supposed to pump the bread up a little bit uh, and uh, and you can eat it that way. I'm not a big fan of the bread in the IMPs. It tastes really doughy. And I think, I don't, I've never had it heated up, but maybe that's why, maybe it needs to be heated up to, to eat it. So anyway. Um, uh, I guess so too, like the purpose of, we haven't really talked about the purpose of a ration is to keep you alive, not really to be like, you know, wine and cheese. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's not a gourmet meal. This is like, if yeah. you're in the field and you have no other, like this is the kind of almost like survival rations, right? Like, this yeah, is- so like modern soldiers, yeah. like at camp, like if they're at, at the base or whatever, they're not eating rations. No, they're no. eating in the mess. mess, hall. In the mess or hall. There's also in a, a perfect world, soldiers would get fresh rations mm-hmm. or what would be used to be called a hay box. I don't know if they still call it that or, or not. A ration. Yeah. <laughs> a ration. Um, and also boxed lunches are very popular with the military on different mm-hmm. exercises where each person gets literally a paper box with a, sam- a couple sandwiches in it, some pudding usually or something like that cookies and a couple of drinks and some fruit and vegetables Uh, so they do try to provide the fresh rations wherever possible i gather Um, and that's mainly because you don't want to eat mres three meals a day seven days a week for too long because of the salt content the (laughs) the amount of calories that you're eating every day and it's probably not going to be good for your digestive system uh, if you eat them for too many days in a row but i mean they're definitely very nutritious uh, from the calorie and the- Just, uh, just, ex- just to expand on what Kathleen just said, what I found in my research on AMPs, which I wasn't even aware of until now, was that um, they're not designed to be consumed by soldiers for more than 30 days without going back to fresh rations because 
they lack calcium and folic acid. So if you don't right. get back to a regular diet, you're going to be suffering eventually. And so they're not designed for more than 30 days consumption without adding, adding fresh food. And the other thing I found, the NATO standard for IMPs or, or that type of rations for all NATO armies is it has to have, with the three meals, a minimum of 3,200 calories for each soldier per day. And the Canadian ones currently have 3,600 yeah. calories. It's crazy. So you're right. You eat them too long. <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. yeah. And you need a lot of salt with them. Or no, it's not a lot of salt. You need a lot of water when you're eating IMPs. In my yes. <laughs> and if you can it's cook them and heat them up there, that's that's better. Yeah. Heating but, up is better. And uh, but you can eat them cold. But yeah. yes, uh, definitely. And it, it's funny because I remember in the early 90s, I want to say, or maybe in the, the, the late 90s, throughout the 90s, these boil in the bag meals were actually quite popular that you could buy at the grocery store um it was a magic pantry i think it was called yes, that you could correct. buy at the, at the grocery store and you'd buy them they came in these little foil packets and you boil it you can still get them if you go to camping stores if you're doing backcountry type camping um you boil them in the bag and then you just crack it open and you can eat it right out of the bag essentially and that's exactly what's in an imp uh, so maybe that kind of moved things more into the more appetizing side of <laughs> <laughs> of the meal packs who knows because they became more commercial um so anyway then i started uh, i found a, something that said that imps were first used by the canadian forces in the 1980s and they replaced earlier canned rations kind of like what you were saying uh, uh adrian uh, which was called the irp which was mm -hmm. individual ration pack uh, and then also replaced the Canadian Army tin ration and something called the compo ration, which I don't know what that is. I have info um, on that later. Okay, good. Uh, and so that's what took me to World War One and World War One rations. And so uh, I started out with uh, veterans, veterans affairs website, veterans.gc.ca, and uh, they talked about troops. Um, getting served rations in the trenches, the, the food that they were served. Um, and the ration for a British soldier, which would have been similar to the Canadian, consisted of measured amounts of fresh or canned meat, bread, vegetables, bacon, cheese, jam, tea, sugar, rum, and tobacco. Uh, and there was a really great art uh, video, which we can link in the, um, the show notes here, of a man named Mr. Patinode, who was an a Canadian military driver uh, during the First World War, and he helped to move the rations from the back lines of uh, of the the encampment up to the the trenches. And he talks about what would happen to those rations along the way and how long it took. Like they would start at seven a.m. and they'd get to the trenches by eleven. Uh, and then it reminded me of Jack Hardy, who was a local soldier from St. Catharines, who was a driver during the First World War. And his job was to, to drive the rations from the back, uh, the back trenches to the, um, the front lines. I didn't go into that too much, but uh, the video uh, audio kind of clip uh, reminded me of Jack Hardy uh, and that local story, which I thought was really great. Uh, the most interesting uh, part of that story what, that Mr. Patinode talks about is that there was always flack or uh, you were getting artillery bombardments as you were moving along to get up to the trenches. And you're also carrying water in these ginormous almost like an oil drum 
uh, and frequently they'd get to the front and the oil drum had been pierced by some sort of shrapnel uh, and there was no water left in the oil drum, which would have been awful if you were that guy that was in the uh, uh, in the trenches waiting for the water and rations because it appears that they only came once a day. Uh, so imagine um, the awful conditions in the trenches of the First World War. You're waiting for hot water to be able to make yourself some coffee. And the next thing you know, you know, the water is limited because it didn't make it to the front. Uh, so then that took me to a book by Tim Cook, uh, who we had as our speaker last night on our virtual lecture series. He wrote a book called The Secret History of Soldiers. And uh, he talks a little bit about food in there and food being a potent motivator, which is totally true. Like when we talked earlier about an army marching on its stomach, it's totally true. Food is a huge motivator to get people to do what you want them to do. <laughs> Especially uh, <laughs> for me. Yeah. And he says, and I quote, soldiers protested against going over the top in a raid or even a big attack, but they would scream bloody murder if they felt their ration of bread was too small or if they were stuck again with their least favorite jam, which apparently was plum jam, by the way, not a very popular jam at the I time. I do not blame them at all. That sounds awful. <laughs> uh, but in actual fact, you think that... Uh, most soldiers in the First World War had rations that were prepared, you know, cooked from the raw materials into something uh, rather than like a box of something that they had to cook themselves. So company cooks prepared for 150 men. Uh, and they also had bakeries that produced fresh bread, although I imagine that that was going to be limited by where you were on the lines and what was available locally, uh, because they would have to, I'm sure, recruit local bakers to uh, to help to prepare the amount of bread that would be required for a soldier. Uh, but most of the time, cooks were just old soldiers who couldn't, uh, who were no longer able to work at the front lines and were sent to cook. And so the quality of the food might not have been what we wanted. And generally, it was some sort of stew made with meat that may or may not be really great, <laughs> pulled all together uh, and uh, sent up to the front lines with your bread or hard biscuit, which is what they called it then, which is basically your hard tack. <laughs> Um, and then when food was not available, like when fresh cooked food, like your fresh rations was not available or couldn't be transported because of the danger from shell fire or um, something like that, soldiers depended on canned bully beef is what it was called. Uh, and um, Tim Cook says, and I quote, there were many types of this canned food, although most were unidentifiable meats marbled with fat and gristle. Sounds awful. More to um, spam cans that we've eaten in our past. Yes. Have. Yeah, yeah. Better and when so you fry it. I know that soldiers had these little can opener things. They were like a little handheld can opener. And you like, imagine, I could just imagine you're sitting in the trenches freezing to death and you get your little can opener. And you're like, Opening your little can of bully beef and it's like a rolled up piece of mis meat in this thing that you mm -hmm. have to cook over your little personal burner mm -hmm. uh, but i mean yeah. if you don't have anything else it probably tasted really good at the time yeah and two things you never want to lose was your can opener and your matches <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> keep your matches dry 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, uh, I didn't go too far into the uh, the bully beef uh, situation, but I could personally just imagine what it must have been like, and uh, it doesn't sound very pleasant. So I would imagine, even though the fresh rations weren't cooked by the best cooks in the world, that they were probably much better than bully beef. Uh, and hardtack. Um, and then also, I, I then ended up on this little bit of a tangent about cigarettes, because cigarettes were also a necessary indulgence. Uh, and care packages from home were sent. Uh, we actually have lots of instances of uh, local people gathering together to create care packages to send to World War One soldiers. And that also included cartons of cigarettes uh, for the soldiers that were there. Um, and there was also a cigarette ration um, but apparently the cigarette ration that the government provided was not a very good cigarette. They were poor quality. So people mostly preferred the home scent rations. And also soldiers did frequently get packages from home and were always asking for food from home to help to supplement uh, these meager rations. And to me, this doesn't even sound like a ration that provides the caloric requirements of a soldier for a day like we get today. It sounded to me like you're getting one large meal a day, and this is kind of what you have to uh, to get you through it. Um, so, this is where it took me to rum and the <laughs> rum ration. Uh, and so, this is a quote from the book: "Strong, gut-burning rum was an another crucial tool for uplifting soldiers' morale." When rum jars made it to the front, the enlisted men were given a stiff tot at dawn and at night in a ritual called stand to and stand down. Many soldiers saw the nighttime allotment as their reward for surviving the day and it helped them to carry on. The rum was dark and thick, almost viscous and had a very high alcohol content. Anyway, it sounds like the rum was really like a syrup. Uh, and uh, so the rum allotment had a very high alcohol content as well uh, and was used sometimes as a reward and sometimes as punishment and came in gallon jars marked SRD, which stood for either service rum diluted or special red demerara. <laughs> or, anyway. or I ran across this seldom reaches destination. <laughs> It would get diluted and siphoned off at the rear areas by the carrying party. So and in the First World War, uh, sergeants would dole out two ounces of this overproof rum per soldier, essentially. Um, but the rum ration has been around for a long time. So in the Canadian military, if we just go back to when the Canadian military was technically the Canadian military, uh, in South Africa, the soldiers there received a half a jill of rum per, per uh, three times a week. And a half a jill is less than a pint, or sorry, less than half a pint. So that gives you an idea of the size. It's just a bit less than a half a pint. That's a lot, three times a week. Um, but then by the First World War, it was two ounces of rum. And this takes me to uh, um, the, uh, the regulation about drinking rum and this is where I ended up, that uh, regulations ordered that the rum had to be drunk in the presence of an officer or an NCO, which is a non-commissioned officer, so that hoarding could not be done uh, with any extra rum poured into the dirt. 
So you mm -hmm. had to drink it when you got it mm -hmm. <laughs> because you weren't allowed to gather it all up so that you had like a whole bottle's worth of rum uh, to get yourself totally hammered at some point in the future. <laughs> so. And I, I, I read that it was one ounce in the morning, one ounce in the evening, right. not enough to get you drunk, enough to make you feel better, sleep better. And that the, off, the NCOs would use an empty little OXO tin to measure the one ounce for each soldier. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't find I didn't find that, but that's awesome. It did say though that many soldiers remarked that if they hadn't had their rum, the war would have been lost. Uh, that that's how important the rum ration was to those soldiers. Uh, and there was actually another um, uh, little bit in the book, uh, in Tim Cook's book, where he mentions that an officer made note that the soldiers were much more animated and much more talkative, <laughs> unsurprisingly, after they'd had their uh, their rum uh, uh, ration for the day, uh, and it really did help to bolster them. So that's it's an interesting. It was good for morale uh, anyway, uh, and so that's really where my uh, um, my research took me, ended off with the regulations on rum rations. <laughs> just, uh, just a further note on the rum ration, uh, uh, the SRD on the jugs, and you can still find these big ceramic jugs in uh, antique shops. I have a friend who collects them. The SRD actually really stood for Service Ration Depot, but the soldiers made all those other acronyms, <laughs> which were probably more realistic. And uh, <laughs> even in the late 70s, early 80s, I remember being on winter exercise as a young soldier, and we would get our one or one and a half ounce of Canadian Forces Captain Morgan's rum. And it was like wow. rocket fuel. And it actually said on the label, Canadian Forces rum. Cool. It was brewed for the Canadian Forces. And I remember getting that in the late 70s and early 80s, but later on, not so much. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a morale booster, helped you sleep better, that's for sure. Yeah, we don't have that. I don't have that experience in the cadets because clearly they didn't give us alcohol when we were cadets and uh, cadet officers are not allowed to uh, to drink while we're on duty. So, <laughs> All right, Mike, let's hear uh, let's hear all about your research. Well, actually, uh, actually, Kathleen covered quite a bit of it, but I want to start with some basic definitions. Uh, so um, she covered quite a bit about IMPs and MREs and the modern stuff. So, but going back to some basic definition of uh, types of military rations. Yeah. And this is 20th century, of course, you know, since World War I. Uh, first of all, we have the category of combat rations, which covers your IMPs and your MREs. So they're, they're boxes or packages that you wouldn't want to eat for more than 30 days because they don't have certain <laughs> vitamins. Um, they can be eaten cold but they're much better eaten boiled in water or you add hot water. They include things like tea and coffee, which is a great booster of morale in the morning if you can brew up a hot cup of coffee or tea in your trench. Um, so that, that, that's the combat rations. But again, they're not meant to be used for more than 30 days. Next would be patrol rations. So you're on a, a long range patrol or a fighting patrol or uh, you're in contact with the enemy. And these today are, are known as light meal combat. And what they are is they're a pouch, which you could fit into your large combat jacket or, or leg pockets. And you'd have at least one day's meal in this pouch, which you carried with you. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, if you could not sit down and have a, a decent meal or get resupplied, you had this patrol ration. And the, uh, the Brits used to call them LERPs, long range patrol rations. And uh, 
I remember we had British paratroopers train with us in Petawawa in the 80s, and they had these long-range patrol rations. And my favorite was corned beef and hash. It was awesome. <laughs> as long as you added the hot water, it wasn't too good dry. And I would trade my Canadian rations to the British paratroopers to get their corned beef and hash. And uh, everybody was happy. There was a novelty for them and novelty for me. So, so that's these were dried that you had to add water to? Pardon me? These were dried foods that you had to add yes. water? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. So whenever possible, brew up some water whenever possible. <laughs> okay. The next category, emergency rations. Now, uh, I'll talk maybe more about that, but it, basically, uh, World War One and World War Two and the British and Canadian armies, these were a sealed tin of, a, of an emergency supplement of a small amount of meat and a few other things that was in a sealed tin with a little can opener, like a sardine can. And these were only to be opened when there was no other food available, you had no ability to be resupplied, and you were probably in contact with the enemy, and only could be opened on command of an officer. Only a commissioned officer could say, okay, you open up here. They were also called iron rations in World War I. So these were packed in the soldier's small pack, which they carried on their web, with their web gear, and they'd have things like extra socks, a sweater, and they'd have these emergency rations, which only, again, could be opened on order of an officer. So that's, that's like the last ditch. You have no other food. Like how morale busting would that be? Okay, everyone, it's time to open the emergency ration. Yeah, we're screwed. No. We're not getting resupplied. We're, we're not getting more food. Where's my wine and cheese? Yeah. And bread. And bread, you Frenchman. And bread, that's right. Okay. Also, I ran across this, and I was aware of it. In, in, in uh, aircraft and armored fighting vehicles like tanks, there would be an emergency meal pack for the crew of that aircraft or that tank or armored fighting vehicle so that if if they could not get resupplied with fresh food or, or imps or whatever there was a an emergency open only when there's no other food available in the aircraft or the armored vehicle so that was like for the four-man crew or whatever of a, of a, of a tank so that's uh now fresh rations kathleen covered this fresh rations are very important for morale and nutrition and whenever possible, every army in the world, going back to the days that Adrian talked about, every army in the world knows the importance of getting fresh, hot food to the troops. It, it gives them more uh, energy. It gives them more morale. It gives them more, more uh, happiness, I guess. Um, so whenever possible, even on winter exercise in, the, in my military days, we'd be on IMPs for a week, and then suddenly... Uh, the, uh, the quartermaster would bring around a carton of eggs, uh, a loaf of bread, and some slabs of bacon. And we could cook it up on our own little mountain stoves that we had in our uh, mess tins. Or uh, sometimes if it's winter, we had a, a cooking uh, skillet. And, you know, just to have that one day's fresh breakfast made all the difference for morale. So fresh rations, whenever possible were brought up from the field kitchens of the company and companies 120 to 150 men. And the field kitchen for the company would try and get the fresh rations up. And the more often, the better, right? You don't want to be eating those IMPs every freaking day. Uh, <laughs> I have to say that in, uh, cause I'm a, a cadet officer with the, the Navy side of things that we have in the evening when we're doing activity, uh, like, exercises we have something called kai which is basically hot chocolate and some sort of snack and it's usually fresh rations and if we've been eating imps for the rest of the um 
the exercise, Kai is usually literally bread and peanut butter and jam and mm. hot chocolate for most of the time with cadets. And you can't believe how much you enjoy that piece of bread with peanut butter on it because it's fresh rather than the uh, the food in the boxes. The highlight of your day, for sure. The highlight of your day. Yeah. Uh, and I, the other thing I want to cover is um, meeting, uh, sorry, meal utensils uh, and tools. Every army in the world in the 20th yes. century and, and even before has issued the soldiers uh, a mess tin or a plate, uh, a canteen cup or a, or a tin cup, and a KFS, which as Kathy knows, stands for knife, fork, and spoon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, but what about a wine opener? <laughs> no, no, that's the French army. That's only the French army. But they probably do have that in the French army. <laughs> I bet you, actually, I bet you they do. Uh, yeah, I'll have to look at that. And soldiers in the Canadian and British Army were also issued a clasp knife, which had um, a screwdriver, a knife, things like that on it. They were also like a personal pocket knife, as well as their bayonet fighting knife. But so every soldier carried these mess tins in their web gear so that they could eat out of them, they could cook on them. Now, interesting thing, when I was in in the 70s and 80s, the Canadian mess tins, I don't know if Kathy knows this, but they were made of aluminum, which is not good to cook in. <laughs> It's not good to eat out of. And I think it took the military several years to figure out, oh, wait, aluminum in <laughs> utensils? Not a good idea. Eventually, they became steel, but it was like, oh, my God, maybe that's why I can never remember where I put my car keys because all those years <laughs> making out of aluminum mess tins. It just baffles the mind. <laughs> and uh, another thing they, they issued to us was... Uh, hexamine tablets i don't know if kathy ever ran into these no. um, the little squares they were like wax and they were fuel tablets oh yeah you, you remember those yeah i we never used them but i do remember them yeah you never use them because they eventually found out they were toxic fumes awesome yeah. <laughs> and you would you would put this in a little hole in the ground or in a hole in the side of your trench and you put your metal canteen cup over it and you'd heat up your coffee, your tea, your soup. But eventually the warnings come out, do not inhale fumes because these are toxic. You know, so I'm cooking my food over a toxic fire. Well, that's lovely. But as long as it didn't get into your canteen cup or your, or your food container, you're, I guess you're okay. Uh, eventually got rid of those. But yes. I know they have those little sterno cans like uh, that you can get for chafing dishes yes. now that you can use for cooking your, uh, your IMPs if you need to. I did run across that in World War One and World War Two. That sterno cans were very popular. Uh, otherwise, soldiers would have to make a small fire with uh, with strips of sandbag coated in candle wax uh, or uh, small pieces of wood, which the ammo crates would be torn apart to make little wooden fires. The problem was, you're making a fire, smoke, enemy sees smoke. Now you get machine gun mortar fire coming down on your smoke, right? So had to be very careful about when and where you cooked your even brewing up a cup of coffee or tea. Um, tea was very popular World War One and Two with British and Canadian, of course. Coffee more so nowadays, I'm sure. But uh, so going back to so that's your basic categories of rations that I that I ran through. Um, Kathleen covered the modern era pretty good, so I'm going to go back to World War One briefly. Thing, and again, Kathy covered a lot of what I had in my notes. Uh, so that emergency tin was called iron rations, only to be open on command of an officer. It said that right on the tin. It said only to be open on command of an officer. That was your last ditch. Oh, my God, we're going to starve to death food. Uh, and uh, let's see. 
Uh, I, wonder what, I wonder how many did you ever come across anything about how many people ate those before they were told to like oh. you're talking about sometimes these are like entire groups of teenage boys who I know eat a lot and yeah. so like they get to a point where they're like you know what no one's ever going to even notice I'm just going to open this and eat it yeah but as you know being a military officer yourself there's a thing called inspections that's and true okay open up your small pack I want to see your emergency can. I want to see that it's still still. And if it wasn't still there, you probably got charged. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know, um, you know, and they inspect your weapons. They inspect your gear, and uh, you never know when these inspections would happen. It'd be okay, lads. I'm inspecting your rifles. I'm inspecting your your emergency rations. You know, so you be careful. You don't get yourself in that way. Pardon my French. So, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So there was discipline issues as far as things like that, uh, and as far as cooking. You didn't want to draw fire. Now, one interesting thing I ran across, breakfast was a big morale booster. And after stand two, so stand two, I'll just explain was the most likely time you get attacked in a defensive position is first light and last light. Right. So stand two is about an hour long, usually between sun up and, and an hour later. So maybe five to 6 a.m. where everyone is awake with the rifles at the ready, machine guns manned in case you get attacked. And after stand two, they would have breakfast. And what I ran across in the First World War was that uh, fresh uh, bacon in large slabs would be brought up to the, to the front line. And, and if they had eggs, maybe, um, and some cans of beef, cans of stew, and they would, they would make their breakfast leisurely after stand two. And funny thing I found, the Germans sometimes respected this time and didn't attack because the Germans were also having their breakfast. It was like an honor thing, like, okay, it's our time of day where no one's going to shoot. We're going to have a nice, it's the only time of day we get a peaceful meal. And both sides often respected that, which was interesting, I found, because um, the Germans would be cooking their breakfast over in their trench in World War One. And uh, so, again, like Kathleen said, uh, fresh rations in World War One as much as possible. A lot of it was in tins, though. And they would get one fresh meal brought up by the carriers from the rear, rear areas. And these are usually people who weren't able to be frontline fighters. They were, or reserve troops that were in the rear resting. They would carry the ration up early in the morning and uh, the soldiers would get that one fresh meal and then the rest was tins and they'd have to make it last through supper or lunch and, uh, and dinner, right? Okay. And then they'd have stand to it last light and they'd usually eat some something that they had left over from the day after last light as their supper. And then again, another rum ration if it hasn't all disappeared by then. So that's why um, breakfast was so popular. Yes, that and, and actually it was. It was popular. <laughs> and, and like I said, if the other side respected the breakfast hours, you know, a couple hours, that was the only time you got a peaceful hot meal. And uh, interesting, I, I read that uh the, the bacon would come up for each each platoon or section. So a platoon is roughly 30 some soldiers. Section might be six to 10 soldiers. So the uh, the bacon would come up in one large chunk. So you had to have some guys with some good sharp knives or a sharpened bayonet to literally cut the bacon and, and fish it out, right? And the, usually the corporal would be in charge to make sure that things were as fair as possible distributed uh -huh. to the men, right? Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, let's see. That's there's, there's all these additional little additional duties that are those, you know, like it, obviously it's not written down anywhere that the corporal's in charge of the bacon. 
like, <laughs> well, in, in, in the orders, like in the standing orders. So like, like no. all these like a little additional jobs of, of mother or father, you know, for, for the military are, are doling out the rum. Yeah. 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 Well, well, yeah, Adrian and, and, and uh, the rank of corporal and above is a non-commissioned officer, like officers are commissioned. So corporals and above would be in charge of things because they were more responsible, more experienced, hopefully more intelligent. And uh, <laughs> they, they'd prove themselves as their, as a private and they, they would be given these responsibilities, which were sometimes even legal responsibilities. And the corporal would be in charge of the, the ration distribution, all right? And the sergeant, the warrant officer or, or the quartermaster in charge of the rum ration. So, um, and each, each company of infantry in the Canadian and British Army had a quartermaster for each hundred and some soldiers and had a cook. And it was their job to get the food and ammunition, the quartermaster, get it all up to the troops. And it would be brought up from the rear areas. So that's some of the things that, uh, that I found that weren't mentioned earlier with Kathy's uh, uh, World War I stuff. Oh, Tommy cookers. I found that the sterno cans, which have been around apparently since World War I, yeah. and the Tommy cookers were little gel-fueled metal folding stoves that a soldier could buy privately. They weren't issued. They weren't issued. They were, they were sold in stores and, and relatives, families would send them in the mail to the soldiers and they could cook their meal on their individual tiny little stove. Again, being mindful of the flame and smoke. So it would be the bottom of your trench or at a, at a little hole dug in the side of your trench. And if you didn't have that, you were back to like pieces of sandbag and wax and uh, strips of wood from the ammunition crates, you know? Like imagine if you didn't have someone that you can send a letter to and say, you know what? I could use an extra five pairs of socks, yeah. cooker, uh, you know, some, some cake in a tin cigarettes, and, you know, cigarettes. Yeah. like yeah. you didn't have anybody you were just relying on what the military was giving you which was just adequate minimal minimal and yeah. you know if you got along good with the soldiers in your section your platoon and and grandma sent you a big cake you might share it right because you know hopefully you're friends with the guys you fight with or the, yeah or there the, is a lot of references to that in a lot of letters from soldiers about sharing with their their kind of trench mates, just the ones that they were kind of chummed around with, I guess. Right, right. Because it's often been said that when you're in battle, the soldiers, yes, they fighting for their country, but really they're fighting for their buddies to their left and right. Right. And, you know, and, and even and today, the Canadian Army has women soldiers who fought in Afghanistan right along with the men. And, uh, you know, so it's not just the guys, it's, it's the fellow soldiers, right? Uh, okay, now bring that brings us up to World War II. Again, in World War II, I found that the emergency ration can was still a thing. It was carried <laughs> in the small pack, only to be open on command of an officer. And I've seen pictures of them when I was doing my research. It says right on the can, only open on command of an officer or you're charged, you know. So that's when you have no other alternative. And uh, the stuff's hitting the fan. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And things are bad. Things are bad. When things are bad, that's right. When things are bad. Okay, <laughs> rephrase that. Um, and again, World War II, every, every army did their best to get fresh food up to the troops as much as possible. So the field kitchen for each company might be a mile behind, and they'd carry up the hot food once a day or as often as they could to supplement the hard tinned rations, all right? Uh, again, very now compo rations. Kathleen mentioned yeah, this. Yeah, I didn't I know found, what that was. 
a lot on that actually. Um, yeah, go ahead. You want to say something there? No, I didn't know what it was. Okay. So compo rations were a large box of 24 hours meals to feed 14 soldiers for one day. Okay. Now, the problem with that, you could also, you could also be designed to feed seven soldiers for two days. So in other words, there was, there was 24 hours, three meals for 14 soldiers. Now, the problem with that is the average, the, the standard size of a Canadian and British infantry platoon was 32, or 30 to 36 soldiers, all right, depending on, on, you know, casualties and effective strength. So in order to feed the platoons, they only sent up two compo boxes, so that would only feed <laughs> 28 soldiers. Well, your platoon is 32 to 36 soldiers. And so not everybody got everything they were entitled to. And again, an NCO would have to dish it out. I was going to say, who I did the dishing out? Yeah, exactly. And can you imagine? You don't want to be that NCO because no one's going <laughs> to like you at the end of the day. Because <laughs> Private Bloggins didn't get his, his corned beef and hash because it went to so-and-so. Or it got split in half because you had to divide it up. You know. So it was interesting that they designed these boxes in the British and Canadian Army for 14 men but it didn't work out. So in other words, to feed a platoon, you should have sent three compo boxes up each day, but they only sent two. So someone went without or, or their, their portion got cut in half to give to someone else, right? Now, the tinned, the tinned rashes that the, uh, that the uh, oh, actually, no, this is in the compo boxes. There was extras in the compo boxes. There was lots of tea, strong tea, but it was welcome because we could heat it up and have a cup of tea and brew up, as they said, brew up a cup of tea. Very good for morale. Um, especially after a cold night. There was cigarettes. There were seven per man per day in the combo box. <laughs> so again, like Kathleen said, never enough smokes, right? Never enough smokes. Hope mom or dad or grandma sent you some smokes. Uh, there was candies. There was salt. There was matches. Again, you want to keep your matches dry. Uh, there was chocolate bars. There was soap and latrine paper. I think it was seven pieces of latrine paper per man. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I want to make that last. Okay. Uh, and let's see. And all this food again in a compo box could be eaten hot or cold, preferably hot when possible, that you could have a fire and, and heat it up, right? Uh, let's see. Oh, also a thing that was popular in World War One and World War II, I should have mentioned earlier, if you didn't have a, a little sterno can or a Tommy cooker, they improvised with jam tins, an empty jam tin. They'd put sand in it and they'd pour petrol, gasoline from the vehicles. They'd pour gasoline into the sand. They would light it and the fumes from the gasoline would act like a sterno can and would heat up the, uh, the food, like your, your mess tin cup or whatever you were putting there. So uh, soldiers often improvise in order to uh, yeah. be a little more comfortable. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, <laughs> so between between all three of us i think we we made for an interesting podcast thank you mike that was wonderful i i also read that you know rations hot rations could save a life but cold rations were a man killer and i think that was when i was reading about the civil war and that might have something to do with you know viruses and and, and food poisoning and that kind of thing as well but i'm really glad you got into some of the practicality of how you eat these things because 
I'm actually so, so every time you're talking, it sounds like soldiers, at least in those the world wars, were responsible for finding their own fuel sources to cook these things. A lot of times, yes. But there yeah. were field kitchens. There were field kitchens. But you right, of always, course. If you're in contact with the enemy, you couldn't always get hot food brought up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That That's really cool. Well, thank you, Mike. That was really great. Thank you, Kathleen. That was wonderful. Uh, enjoy the episode, everyone. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole for some munchy historical treats. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our yummy historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, Connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catherine's Museum or at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catherine's Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.